0: So this is the third week of the rotation. I don't... It's only like the second week of the month. My three-week cycle, so three weeks doing podcasts and then one week off, is very sensible. I was about to say sensical, as in the opposite of nonsensical. So it's very sensical. Uh, Except you, you kind of think of it as being the first, second, third week of the month, but because not every month has only four weeks, it gets out. It gets sort of out of skew very quickly, as it is now. But that is not relevant in any way. I just, it was a thought. And this is the third, the, the point kind of of the third week is it's almost like the stream of consciousness, random things that I have come up that don't fit into a full episode. My grandmother-in-law uh, died last week, and she was 101. We were not very close. I was not particularly upset, if I'm being honest. But that's because we weren't close. She was a very nice lady. But again, also 101. I don't think anyone was shocked or torn up. The the funeral was very interesting because it was very casual. And it made me think about, you know, my life, my funeral, my death, all the things you're supposed to think about at a funeral. I did think about eulogies. So I'm gonna to have to write eulogies for my parents at some point. I'm gonna to have to write eulogies for you know people in my life. So as an experiment, I started writing eulogies for people I know. Now I actually told this to a coworker yesterday, and she seemed horrendously offended by the idea of writing a eulogy for someone who had not died yet. But this is sort of the in my mind the in preparation phase of should this happen, I would like to be prepared and ready. I would be more than willing to my, my own I'd be more than willing to write my own eulogy for someone else to read at my funeral. Like I could eulogize myself. It'd be interesting. I think I would be more diminutive because I think you're the whole point of a eulogy is you're more generous to the person than they deserve because this is the last thing you're ever going to say about them you're not going to come out and say awful things but it puts something into context of the harder it is to write a eulogy for someone the less you care about them or because if you have to struggle to think of nice things to say they aren't a good part of your life it was the way I was thinking about it so this became again an experiment of I went through sort of the people I know, which is a very weird topic to start with. But the idea is the easier it is to eulogize someone, to say positive things about them, actually demonstrates how much or how important they are in your life, how good they are as a person. So I found that my close friends, it was very easy to find examples of them being kind and generous and friendly and supporting me. Whereas as you got further away from my friend group, it got more difficult to mentally just script out a eulogy really quickly. And then it got to people that I've had, you know, mixed relations with. It was positive and then negative and positive. And then I found that for them it was incredibly difficult. And that's when I realized, you know, maybe that person isn't a friend and not someone I should be spending my time with. And I think this might be a good way of actually... You know judging a friendship so after you've been friends with someone for a while how easy is it to write their eulogy what would you say in their eulogy if you had to do it right now and if you can they're obviously a good person they're a good influence in your life and you should keep them around but if you can't it might be a valuable thing to take a moment and say like do i want this person in my life do i want this influence do i want this as part of my existence which got me thinking about dogs. There's mine in the back. There's Dave in the back. He's This is his second nap of the day, but he spends most of the day napping, which is fine. I'm not going to disturb him. Dave recently has been diagnosed with glaucoma, and his eye was swollen, and they, we had to put drops in it. And the, the vet said there's a, a good chance we're going to have to take out one of his eyes. And he's basically functionally blind anyways. But I asked, why do we have to take out the eye? Because right now, basically we put eye drops in his eye and it keeps it under control and it's fine. And she said, well, a lot of people find it troublesome to give the dog eye drops two, three times a day. And I was like, well, if giving a dog eye drops is the biggest challenge with having a dog, then I don't think you should be a dog owner. Because to me, once the dog has been in, like accepted as part of your family, it's family. So, you know, I would have no problem putting eye drops in my wife or my children's eyes two, three times a day. That would be, I know they could probably do it themselves, but if it was became my job, I would have no problem doing it. My grandfather had diabetes. I gave him his insulin. I took his blood and I measured it and I gave him his insulin every morning. That just became my job because I wasn't freaked out by needles, but also it was like, well, why wouldn't I do that for him every day? And I actually didn't consider the efforts towards an animal if it's part of your family, any different. But then I was wondering, why do I have such such an affection for dogs? I mean, a lot of people do, but again, I don't think anyone spends the time thinking of why. And a big thing of what I spend my time doing is, is why are things the way they are? Why is this eulogy very easy to write? Well, it's because that's a good person in my life and I care about them. Why would this eulogy be very difficult to write? Well, that's because they're a piece of shit and I hate them, but I haven't realized that yet. Or they're a bad influence in my life. So for me, the idea of... They said, like, we have to take out his eye. And I said, like, you know, I can understand if it's, like, safer. Or if he's in pain, you take out the thing that causes him pain. But if it's just eye drops, how is, how is that an acceptable option? So I found that really weird. Um, but yeah, why, why, am I, why do I care so much? Why am I so protective of the animal? And I was like, well, Dave, the dog... He's pretty useless. Like, he, he doesn't do anything. He's not very good at anything. We got him as a rescue. His, <laughs> he's kind of a shit dog. But I care about him a lot. And I was like, why? And it's because he's trying his best. He basically can't see, but he still tries to do all the things he could do when he could see. Uh, he He shows the same level of bravery. Like, he'll walk around knowing... Like, I I think he has partial vision in one eye, but basically if it's dark, he can't see anything. Uh, So in the evening, he basically goes blind. He walks around the house exactly the same. He tries to do the same stuff. He tries to hit the same behavior level. He tries to to maintain a quality of life. This is no thought process for him. It's just what he does, and it's the absolute best he can do. Now, again, pretty useless dog. (laughs) He's a little poodle he can't do much but the stuff he does do he tries to do as best he can and now that his life has gotten i would say noticeably worse the quality of life he's trying to live has not changed he's still trying to do the best he can and i think that for me is the most appealing trait and it explains a lot of why i'm so down on people uh, I get down on people a lot, and i i i you know i feel like you know humanity is the worst thing that 's ever happened um I think i 'm on that train this is a very pessimistic point of view, but I think in my life, most of the people I meet i would say half ass everything, and i don 't appreciate that attitude, but it 's in conjunction with they half ass everything but expect to be treated like they're amazing. Like they've done a really good job. I see a lot of people who do average and expect to be treated like they've done above average. So there was an experience once and I, I had done, I'd finished a training with a group and it was the last day. And I said, you know, do you have Do you have anything, any questions? Anything you want to say? And then one of them said, tell us how good we were. Now this actually was what I would consider a below average group in their performance, but I didn't want to say that. I didn't want the last thing I say to be negative, but I obviously was not going to lie to them and commit to a compliment that did not exist. So I ended up saying what probably was a pretty awful thing, but again, it sort of hits the, the base logic of how I live my life. And it was, well, do you think you tried harder Or no, because they they asked, like, tell us about a performance. Then one of them said, tell us how great we are. And that actually bugged me because I was like, you know how well you performed. And that actually brought them to silence because usually you know if you did a good job or a bad job. You know if you tried harder or you didn't try harder. If you tried really hard and didn't do a great job, I actually would still appreciate that. And I could say it. I could say, you have done an average job, but you tried really hard and you worked really hard, and I appreciate that effort. So they said to me, compliment us, and I said do you think you tried harder than every group that's come before you? And they went silent because deep down inside, they knew they had been half-assing this the whole time. So most people have no concept of hard work is in chat. Uh, so can't properly judge their own performance. I agree with that to a degree. That is the uh, Dunning-Kruger effect or the Kruger-Dunning effect, uh, however you want to say it. I always say Dunning-Kruger because I enjoy it more for some reason. I think it sounds better. Um, Yes, but that is when you don't know something, right? So the Dunning Kruger effect is you think you're better at something than you are, but because you lack so much knowledge, your assumptions are incorrect what i'm talking about is they've just completed a training they've been given instructions on what they're supposed to do they've done it but the absolute bare minimum but then at the end of the training they go tell us we're awesome and i you know when i said do this enthusiastically put this do you know complete this activity follow these instructions you know if you did it to the best of your ability or not you know if you just walked up there like i have had people i said like okay please go to the front and and say say this or Do these set of instructions. And you can see them go like... (sighs) And that... (sighs) They know they did that. They know they didn't want to go up to the front. They know they didn't register. So I put a great deal of value in effort. And that effort, it doesn't have to be the the same thing I do. And that goes back to the, the old days of when I did judo. Because I've had lots of people in the last 20 years I've been in Japan... And I talk about judo and I talk about winning a tournament or something and then they'll go, oh yeah, but you're, you're, you're naturally talented. And I actually get really, really offended when people say I'm naturally talented because I, I wasn't. I worked really hard. I went into the judo with nothing. I was not coordinated. I was not capable. I was not good. And I worked really hard and I never gave up and I got beat. I got the shit beat out of me regularly and it was years and years and years. And I knew the naturally talented guys and I, you could tell they just would pick stuff up and do it really, really well from the beginning. Now, 10 years after that, I start doing well, I'm not winning tournaments, but I'm starting to beat the guys who honestly looked down on me for years because I was not particularly good. But what was happening is my work effort, my my my, my, my inability to give up, that might be my only actual trait is that I don't give up on stuff, was starting to pay off because my two or three moves that I was, I've been doing for the last 15 years are starting to click. I've lost so many matches in the same way that I now know that move and I can block it. It's, it's experience, not skill. So these guys who used to have no trouble beating me, now they're not beating me. Five years after that, I'm beating all of them without any trouble at all. And that, to me, was hard work. And those guys who were naturally talented, they, if they'd put in the same level of work as me, they would have been able to go on to a significantly higher level. The problem being that they thought they could coast on that ability forever and would always be better forever. The guys who have a combination of talent and a hard work ethic are the ones who go to the Olympics and stuff. I was never going to be that good, no matter how hard I worked. So then we get to the, we get to the point in my career when I come to Japan, and I'm winning stuff regularly, and I'm doing really, really well. And then people want to downplay that. They don't want to admit, oh, you know, you've tried really hard, you've put a lot of work into this and therefore you've achieved something. They want to say, you're naturally talented. You've always been, and they just made this extenuating assumption. You've always been naturally talented, therefore you never had to work that hard to win. And I get incredibly angry, incredibly quickly when people say that shit, because it diminishes the value of all the work I put in previously. And I've carried that into my work. now. If I am being really honest, this is not my dream job. I don't think anyone. I think you know, ninety nine percent of the people living their lives are not living their dream jobs. There was like a couple of weeks ago in one of the old podcasts, I, I said like, no kid wakes up and goes, uh, "What's your dream? I want to be a middle manager, a middle manager." Like no one does that, and like people making music, I had the the dichotomy of they're living their life making music, but they're making really shit music that they don't appreciate. You know, is that good or bad? Those kind of issues are very interesting to me. But, you know, the guy making music put enough effort into making music that he was skilled enough to be able to pay to make music. So there's something valuable there. That's why I couldn't just say yes or no. Because even if you're making jingles and stuff, if you live your life making music, and maybe you wanted to be a rock star, you're closer than I am to whatever I wanted to be, which I don't even know what that is anymore. So, yeah, I think a lot of my disdain for humanity comes from the fact that I meet people so regularly that no matter what they are offered to do, they just don't try to do it in the first place. And then somehow afterwards, they expect to be told they did a good job. Okay, but then I had another story, and it's another story about sort of a, a miscommunication of intent. So I want to get that up on screen. So this is an article that came out. Well, I just saw it today. So it just came out today. Millennials and Gen Z, your days of remote work could be numbered, says author. Now the irony there immediately for me is where do authors work from? So he's saying your your work from home days are numbered because uh, the cultural, you know, work culture has changed. The pandemic's over, all that kind of shit. And I was like, Who the fuck is this guy? Because if he's an author, I bet he works from home. And so it's very easy to sit at home and tell other people that, you know, the culture's changed, you don't get to work from home anymore. It's not written by this Karen lady, Gilchrist. She's reporting on what this author said, so I can't judge her opinion very, very harshly. But millennials and Gen Z, it may be time to reacquaint yourself with the office attire and daily commute. Your days of remote working could be numbered according to a future of work author. So this is a guy who writes books about the future of work and has failed to see that work from home is going to be more prevalent i actually don't think it's going to go away i don't think it's going to be less do companies do want to bring people back but it's because they've paid for office towers or offices within a building and they need to justify that expense and there's no reason to have so like having spent that money uh and no one showing up there shows that you've actually made a bad decision is one of the theories that's out there. As the workforce adapts to a post-pandemic landscape, it could be in the interest of both employers and employees to return to the office full-time. Steve Cadigan, LinkedIn's first chief HR officer, has said, I bet LinkedIn's uh, chief HR officer does a lot of remote work as well. Younger workers, those in Gen Z and the lower ranges of the millennial age bracket, looking to advance their careers could especially stand to gain from return to pre-pandemic norms, according to Cadogan, uh, whose book Workquake explores how the pandemic could pave the way for a better workplace model. That 20 to 35, particularly the 20 to 29, 30-year-old range is really frustrated. Their sense of commitment to an organization where they haven't met people in person, they haven't been around, is much less than the people who are spending time together as we were before. I find that statement to be bullshit. I work in an office with other people. My commitment to the organization has nothing to do with my relationships with those people because... I would bail on them in a second if I got a better offer. And I if one of my coworkers said, like, I got a better offer, I'd be like, you should bail right away because the organization does not give a shit about me or anyone else. Uh, I mean, that's just the, the, the long and short of it. So I'm doing this in reference. Maybe other companies are. I find it weird. Companies in these situations talk about teams and the organization and it, as if everyone likes being there. And I don't think companies realize that 90 some percent of the people have no desire to be there whatsoever. They don't even want to work at all. They would rather be doing something else. They're here for money and nothing else. So if you make it as uncomfortable, like if you can make it more comfortable, they're more likely to stay. If you make it uncomfortable, you're more likely to have people quit, as we will see, I think, later on. Remote work policies implemented implemented in the early days of the pandemic have facilitated major steps forward, including increased workforce participation and still stronger productivity levels. So they're saying that remote work is increasing how much people are working and productivity. And I've actually seen a bunch of articles, uh, primarily anti-work on the subreddit and stuff like that. But they're talking about like, Managers want to bring people back to the office for the office culture, but then these people who are in charge of teams are saying, my team is actually more productive at home. And there was one I read this morning, and he was like, we're in a massive company. Our, the, the management has said everyone has to come back to work. They've had 45% of his team have quit and gone to the leading competitor who does the exact same work. And then the, the, the boss is like, what are what they offering?" he's like, well, maybe two $300 more a month. And he's like, they're, they're leaving for that because they have no loyalty. So there's the first mistake is expecting loyalty from people who are doing this as a job for money. They don't get the benefits of a CEO or a, a major VP or any of these other things. So there is no loyalty to the company that, again, does not care about them, that would fire them instantaneously without, without a second thought. But then he said, they're offering work from home. So it's the the, the two to three hours a day commute, let's say. So I commute three hours a day minimum. So I do an hour and some to get to work, an hour and some to get home. And I might go somewhere else during the day, that kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm one of those people who has an insane commute. And if I could cut that out, that's like three, four hours of my day regained to just do whatever I want. I could play video games, I could make podcasts, I could do whatever I want. But they're on top of, Uh, commuting passes and parking. This is America, probably. So they're probably talking about parking. So that's another X amount of dollars to pay for parking because the company, I bet, doesn't provide it. Japan has a sort of culture of companies pay for transportation, which I didn't even realize wasn't normal because I worked in Canada, but I worked really close to where I lived. And I would actually ride my bike, and I never paid transportation, but I never thought about it because I never paid for it. Now that I actually travel to and from work, I think, yeah, if I had to pay for gas and parking, that's two hundred three hundred dollars out of my paycheck, and I've lost three hours of the day and a bunch of stuff on top. So the other company is actually offering two and three hundred dollars icing. You get two three hours of your day back, and on top of that, you're retaining the, let's say two three hundred dollars parking and gas. Maybe you don't even need a car anymore, so you can remove that expense. So not you're not making two three hundred dollars more. You're making like four five six to a thousand dollars more a month just because of all these savings of not having to leave your house unless you want to. So I get back to this article. So that was again the 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 thinking of the upper management is disconnected from the actual employee. Uh, but they have also resulted in a disconnect between employees and their teams, fueling phenomena such as the great resignation. So again, this is the lack of loyalty to a company, but companies are refusing to pay people to retain them. And the most common story on the anti-work subreddit is I quit my job and they had to hire two people to replace me at more money for each person. It would have been cheaper to retain me. Um, But that's actually true. People are willing to pay more money to get new people than they are to retain the people they have because they think once you're in the system, you can't escape. Uh, They do have, I think, this false sense of loyalty. Like companies think that you've worked there for years and years and years and therefore you're just there so we don't need to think about you. I've worked at my company for 21 years. My wife actually brought this up. I didn't even think about it. The 20th anniversary at my company. No one said anything. And it's because no one noticed, no one cared. Uh, but that's my point. Like if you're talking loyalty to the company, it goes both ways. So if they're going, they have to demonstrate they care about me. So I've worked at the same company for 20 years. My boss didn't acknowledge it. She didn't say, hey, that's great. Uh, there was no thank you. Uh, there was no sort of event. Uh, not like It's not like we got a lunch. Like nothing happened. I went to work because I didn't know Myself, so I didn't notice, uh, it was my wife. You've worked at that company for 21 years. Did they do anything for your 20th anniversary? And I said, no. And I, I wouldn't have even thought about it because that is how low my expectation would be for them to actually show that they cared about me as an employee. So the idea that I care about them as a company, as an organization, is exactly the same. Uh, that in turn has led to greater fluidity in the labor market, which a lot of people would say that's the free market economy, which these people want. They want people to be able to choose what they do. Uh, so this is actually a good thing, but they're saying it's a bad thing. While fine in good times, could be risky ahead of a potential recession. This is another theme that's come up with these articles: is the potential recession. So they're threatening people, saying like, you should hold on to the job you have in case the economy takes a downturn and those jobs are not available anymore. But the problem there being that I think you need to have the recession first before people would actually say, it's worth holding on to my job. To remedy that, younger workers may need to return to the workplace, whether voluntary or otherwise, to nurture those all-important relationships. Again, I disagree that those relationships are all-important. Unless you're being groomed towards moving into upper management or you have a direct mentor of some sort at work, those relationships are almost realistically non-existent with both teammates and superiors, he said. The challenge for that group is trying to be more intentional. Uh, I don't think that's a real thing. I think they do have intent, and that intent is to take care of themselves, not show loyalty to a company that does not give a shit about them. It's really, really hard to do that in a remote capacity, and that may be a big forcing function uh, that's going to force organizations to realize we need to get this younger demographic together for them to feel more committed and for them to feel more excited about being part of the team. It's a big challenge right now. This is clearly written by someone who does not live on the internet like these millennials do. So I have a very strong friend group, I would say almost stronger than my real life friend group that is entirely existent on the internet. I've made some very good friends on Twitch, but I've made most of my closest friends now via video games. So we met, it was very casual, uh, we started playing regularly. These are the people who became my best and closest friends. I have barely ever seen them in real life. I don't leave the house, I'm essentially a shut-in. I go to work, I come home, but because I live so far away from the city, I don't go out with other people. So my real depth and connection comes from being on the internet. Now I'm old, I'm probably this author's age, but I understand how the world society uh, interaction has changed. I would bet he has no idea what Twitch is. I bet he has no idea what it is to play an online game, a co-op game with someone else, and actually like, you know, properly team up with them. I bet he doesn't know what it is to just do Zoom calls with friends. Like the Zoom drinking parties. I was like, of course. Everyone's stuck in their house. They're not going to give it up. They're going to have drinking parties with their friends. They're going to have movie viewing parties with their friends. These streaming services have created these functions so that people can have viewing parties together. I don't think there's anything else of value in this, to be honest. Well, many workers have already been asked to... Asked or have chosen to return to the office, the number of people working f- uh, from an office full-time is still well below pre-pandemic levels. And that's interesting because they make it sound like that's a bad thing. As of April 2022, two years from the start of the pandemic, just over a third of workers have returned to the f- office full-time, according to a study. So that's 34%. Even then, less than half uh, were there of their own accord. So 15% uh, 15 of the 34% So 50% of the employees didn't want to go back. Uh, 55% of an in-office person saying they would prefer a more flexible arrangement. Indeed, the Netherlands moved a step closer towards making remote work a legal right this week. The Dutch parliament on Tuesday approved legislation that forces employees to consider employees' requests to work from home if the profession allows it. And I think that is it. If your profession allows you to work from home, the savings are actually there for the company as well. So the company might need a small office or uh, might need to rent a space for meetings. But the reality, I think, is that offices, for the most part, are relevant. Yeah, that's, that's just where we are, I guess. I, I needed a conclusion to that. It is a weird path we took today. I started with eulogies, went to why I like dogs and don't generally like people, and then ended up at work from home. But that is sort of the esoteric nature of the stream of consciousness that is the third of the three-week cycle of C. McBee. And uh, so let's summarize. People, if they can work from home, should be allowed to work from home. Organizations should not expect loyalty. People should work harder, should not half-ass their tasks. Dogs try their best all the time, which is why I like them better than people. And if you can write a eulogy for someone really quickly, that's probably a good, important person in your life. And that is C. McBee for this week.